0: Tales from the plantation nation. Woo! Fresh.
1: I look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything is pitch black and I can't see nothing. Everything was pitch black except the motherfuckers coming. I didn't mean to let them catch me. I was looking for my brother. All I know is that I feel an arm. Could be a foot but a brother couldn't speak because his tongue they took. I was shook when I saw that fetus fall from the womb. But they came in the name of Jesus. Man, I'm confused. We was fooled. Our village was Burnt in all our tools and now I'm poly on this cruise and a nigga sharp fooled if I can't make it Where the fuck's my destination? To the land of milk and honey, but I'm naked and I'm hated and Satan saw me speak another language. Damn It's fucked up on this slave ship There's a dead body next to me It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this slave ship it's a dead body next to me It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on its slave ship it's a dead body next to me That's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this relationship That's a dead body next to me it's a dead body next to me. It's fucked up on this ledge. I ship. look around for my mother and my little sister. What happened to my brother? Some motherfuckers killed him. Damn, my head's spinning and I'm sick to my stomach. Everything pitch black and I can't see nothing. Coming down off this black robber thinking about jumping. The big homie threw a meeting, but he ain't talking about nothing. All I know is that he got an L. Could be a rock. So he don't feel like they see it when they come to them cops. But some shit that I ain't about to stop. So they M.I.A. Where they? At, working hard down in P.I.A., private prisons, make millions worth of C.C.A., bruh, making like a dollar a day, man, when count time comes if your ass moves, then you ain't dead, it's a toilet by my bed, I said, if count time comes, if your ass moves, then you ain't dead, or it's a toilet by my bed, it's a dead body next to me, it's a dead body next to me, it's fucked up on this slave ship, that's dead body next to me. It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on a slave ship It's a dead body next to me It's, it's fucked up on a slave ship It's a dead body next to me It's a dead body next to me It's fucked up on this slave ship
2: Nation. Tales from the Plantation Nation. Welcome, everybody. That's my boy, Sarah Fresh right there on the intro, new Nubian music. And yeah, it's fucked up on the slave ship. And what's really fucked up is that it's 2023, and we still trying to get off this slave ship. That's what's really fucked up.
3: So yeah, welcome
2: to episode five of Tales from the Plantation Nation. My name is Samuel Nathaniel Brown. I'm your host. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for joining us. And if you are um, returning, thank you for coming back. Glad to have you. This is um, where we represent the voice of those who are oftentimes overlooked and forgotten, the lost demographic, the incarcerated, the families of the incarcerated, and those who are incarcerated don't even realize they're incarcerated. So today we have a very, very, very special lineup for you all. And I'm excited to have this discussion today with um special guest Friday Jones and Chris Logsdon. And what's so special about these guests today is that they are – two of the champions of one of the largest movements of our lifetimes right now that's taking place. And so it's an honor to have them on the show to come and speak so that, you know, those who are behind the walls or those who don't get to make it to listening sessions, can have an opportunity to talk about one of the biggest issues of our time, which is reparations. So with that said, um, allow me to tell you a little bit about our first guest, K.J. Muhammad, also known as Friday Jones. She's one of three co-chairs and a founding member of the National Assembly of American Slavery Descendants of Los Angeles. And she was recently appointed as a commissioner to Mayor Garcetti's Los Angeles Reparation Commission. K.J. is the author and publisher of a self-help memoir, The Real Friday Jones. K.J. is a budget representative for Empowerment Congress West Area Neighborhood Council and served as a Budget Advocate for the City of Los Angeles for fiscal year 2019-2020. KJ is also an active member of New Frontier Democratic Club and Black Women's Democratic Club in Los Angeles. Friday, KJ, has over 20 years in business management with emphasis on managing high-network individuals and entertainment clientele. She has worked with Grammy Award-winning artists, studio heads, and the managing director of Goldman Sachs West. KJ has also managed multi-state commercial real estate portfolios, overseeing the construction of production soundstage in Canoga Park, and the initial construction of a hospital in Papua, New Guinea, in addition to managing the day-to-day affairs of her clients. She is also a proud graduate of Harvard University, and most recently, the Los Angeles African American Women's Political Policy Institute 2020. In her mind's eye, she is a dancer and occasional actress. In real life, she does pretty good math. So, round of applause, everybody, (laughs) as we welcome our special
1: guest.
4: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you you so much, (laughs) Mr. Brown, for having me on your show. Um, Definitely have love for our incarcerated family. Um, Even in these California hearings, uh, I've done some public testimony, you know, trying to make sure that the folks inside even know what's going on, um, particularly because you all have devices on the inside, but you can't even connect to the state websites to know what's going on in the state. And that just does not make any sense. So I'm very happy to be here today so we could bring the good news, you know, live and direct.
2: Thank you very much. And that means so much because it's these type of conversations that let people behind the walls and their families know that you are not forgotten because you made a bad decision. It doesn't make that you're incorrigible and no one cares about you, right?
4: Exactly.
2: And so I know that you care about people who are behind the walls because you actually took a trip behind the walls to visit um, the 10P program recently.
4: I did. That was um, that was so empowering and emotionally charged. And um, I think you have a gift. And I told you that, you know, through your poetry and your artistry, um, you, you know, the poem you did, I felt like allowed people the space they needed to just be vulnerable and transparent and to share freely and you know, from Lester Polk to um oh my god, what is the firecracker's name? Um she was to to share her story, you know, so, and how their so lives
2: Miss Cheryl Ward.
4: Miss Cheryl, yes. Miss Cheryl was spitfire from the time I met her, um, as we convened, you know, and she and I talked and on the way over, um and after, you know, all of the um sort of hearing of their story, how their lives intertwined, um, I just, phenomenal woman, phenomenal human being, and that program, you know, that you're doing, um, I think it's something that mental health kind of component um, and that humanity component is, is so important. It was very, very insp- inspiring.
2: Thank you for that. And thank you're you welcome. for being willing to to come behind the walls at that time. Because, like you said, um, I'm sorry, like you said at that time, no one knew what to expect. You all just accepted the invitation and you came. It was a real, you know, it wasn't a dry eye in the room because the story was so powerful. And shout out to Cheryl and Lester for allowing us to even witness that event, The, the two of them coming together from two different sides of the spectrum. Um, Just to shed a little insight before we move on so everybody can understand what we're talking about, Um, there's a a portion of the 10P program that's known as the Survivor Offender Mediation Seminar. And so in this particular event, we were able to bring the crime survivor, which was Ms. Cheryl, um, in contact with or to sit down with the person who offended or committed the crime against her family, and that was Lester, uh, Lester Pope. And... It was it was you know a real tearjerker, but it was a story of forgiveness and transformation, unlike anything that any of us had ever seen before.
5: Yeah, yeah, you know. And so it yeah. was
2: important to create that dynamic because we had we had like district attorneys, we had um, people who were running for public office, we had um, restorative justice practitioners. <laughs> Currently incarcerated people. We had activists. It was a a real multi multifaceted group of people sitting there, and it was important to have that dynamic because the goal was to humanize everyone in the room, you know, yeah. and let them see that we we all share more in common than we than we than we like to often admit. And so the poem that you were talking about was called the theory. And it was, it was discussing the theory of emotional illiteracy-based criminality and how people adopt criminality based on um, as a coping mechanism for unprocessed traumas. And you were then able to say, well, I can see how this ties all the way into the discussion about reparations, even then, you know, how those unprocessed traumas um, and, and from personal trauma to transgenerational trauma translates to people um, adopting criminality as a coping mechanism. Um,
4: yeah, and, I mean, we all know the phrase, you know, hurt people hurt people. Um, in in the book that I wrote, the memoir that I wrote, um, you know, some of the things that have happened to my life and the people who were responsible were also hurt, hurt people, you know. And right. as an adult, sometimes you know it's easier to um i don't want to say find forgiveness because you life is a journey about learning learning about yourself um learning about who you really are and what you're made of um but as an adult you know i was able through therapy um not only to face my demons if you will but also to kind of look at um the people that did hurt me um mm. through a place of humanity you know um right. and you know i i know from the from the gentlemen who who shared on the inside why they were there you know some of them were lifers and um you know they had accepted the decisions that they made but um so many have been just abused as kids you know um, and right. so you wonder how a man um, chooses like that sort of hard exterior, but you know to to be able, like I said, to share um, about their lives in the way that they did. You know, you see the the full human being, not just not just the piece um, right. that that. May have caused hurt or damage to someone else. You see the full human being, and so even in the reparation space, and you know I worked reparations into the conversation um, <laughs> when we were <laughs> when we were out there. Yes. I tell people I could figure a way to talk about reparations under any circumstances, and you know that it's was running. no different because you you think about you know the foster care system, and you know Black people in particular. You know, we make up a significant amount of the foster care system, not just in the state of California, but across the country, right? So we have um, families, some families, you know, wind up on hard times or hard financial circumstances, and the kids wind up being taken away. You know, sometimes it's, it's drug use and this this, and that. Um, but, you know, it's always a system of falling down, and then the kids wind up in, um, in that judicial system, and they almost wind up paying, you know, a a, a price too, and then they get emancipated at, you know, 18, but but really are just sort of left to to fend for themselves. And that's just such a hard way to live and an easy way, you know, to almost create someone who's going to be like super hard. And so from a reparation standpoint, we got to look at the things like our foster care system. We got to look at you know, your issue with Cam Lager and now, um, God, she's the the head of the Congressional Black Caucus here for the state of California. Um, but, Lord, you know, we, we got to look, yeah, look at those kind of laws. Yeah, we got to look at those kind of laws and, you know, how how as a society, you know, do we want to be? And, and servitude is just slavery by another name. Um, so Indeed. as reparationists, we have to care, uh, you know, about that side of it. Um, I, I've never understood why um, inmates, when they they do work, I'm like, at a minimum, you should be making minimum wage. You save in the state, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, you should be making minimum wage so you can still sort of have a way to care for yourself because it's expensive. I saw how much them potato chips were. Um, <laughs> Man, you know,
2: you cost sh- a lot. And it costs a lot up.
4: for a bag of chips. It costs a whole lot. Um, so, right. you know, folks got to care for themselves, you know, inside. Um, and they may have obligations outside, too. And so we got to, you know, make our justice system one that is functional and not one that just, you know, harms people for for the rest of their lives, you know? Ooh,
2: I do know. And you said a lot. Thank you for that. I'm so happy our first, Brother Yusuf, our first, female guest, the goddess, and she fired up, and she just barely getting started, and she didn't just say, you cover so much ground so fast, you know, thank you for that, I just want to say, like, something you said about, you know, hurt people hurt people, and I know I did 24 years in prison, and one thing I can tell you, I I, want to say 99% just to leave room for error, but honestly, I feel like 100% of the people in prison were casualties before they were offenders. Before they offended or, hit or hurt anybody else, they were already some sort of casualty of some form of trauma, sexual abuse, physical abuse, social neglect, whatever it was. Almost everybody I ever met in prison was a casualty before they were offended, you know. And when you talk about, like, people in jail getting paid minimum wage for these jobs, even, even if we didn't jump straight to minimum wage, let's say we didn't go straight there Friday, we can do better than what we got. That's for certain, because what we have right now but, is slavery. Yeah. Yep. What we have right now is slavery, you know? Yep. And right now, forced labor takes precedence over rehabilitation. That's not helping public safety. That's not helping the people who are going to prison. That's not helping the people who the crimes have been committed against. That's helping the bottom lines of these private corporations and these private prisons that's making a buck off of slavery by another name, Period. You know, if we did start paying people in prison a decent wage, then they would come out out of prison with something in a bank account. They would have a skill and a job that they can get, like a lateral transition upon their release, because most of the people go to prison because they don't have these skills to begin with. So we're going to instill these skills into them. That should be part of the reason why they go. We're not saying we don't want people to work. People should work with these skills that they acquire to be able to help them set up for something that's going to be pro-social and beneficial, and reduce the potential of them committing crimes when they get out. That's not how it is right now, you know. Yeah, so, that's
4: that's that's not how it is. And you know, one of the first conversations um, in a reparations space that I had with um, Karen Bass, and this is when she was in Congress. She's now the mayor of the city of L.A. But when she was in Congress, you know, one of the first conversations we had. Um, was about a nephew of mine who was incarcerated, and he had gotten out, but he is someone who had worked those fire lines. And mm. ironically, on uh, his family, like, they got fire chiefs out there in um Orange County. There's a couple of fire chiefs in the family and, like, firefighters. So, like, legit firefighters are in that family, football players and firefighters. And um When he got out, you know, the fire chief that he worked with for the state was like, hey, when you get out, look me up. And he looked him up. But at that time, that predated the state program they have now, you know. So he was doing work that when he got out of, you know, prison, he couldn't do the same work anymore, you know, for Mm -hmm. a good salary, for like a Mm -hmm. $90,000 salary. And that's life-changing, you know. That's life-changing. You learn the skill on the inside, you should be able to, to transfer it, you know, outside and and make money, make good money.
2: You should. I can hold a job for 10 years inside of a prison. And when I get out, I can't list a person as a reference that I work for as a supervisor for that job. I can't put it on a resume um, like and, and put a person as a reference that they can call for that job. I don't have any money saved up from that job. I haven't paid any taxes from that job. Nothing. And then they tell me to fend for myself. They'll give me two hundred dollars. But I just worked this job for ten years. Right. 10 years. And right. it's just that's 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 counterproductive to public safety and the growth and development of the person that we're trying to rehabilitate in the cost setting. What should happen what should happen, a person should go there and be able to identify what caused them to adopt criminal behavior. That's the rehabilitative programming. That's supposed to be the most important thing in the cultural setting. Why were you not conforming to the societal norms, even though we know that whatever that is, you know, but why were you not conforming to societal norms? That's the most important thing. Identify what led you to adopting criminal behavior and how you can now return back to it. The second most important thing is, is giving you the skills that you need to survive in society educational, vocational, you know, training. And if a person is in there working a the job or going to school and acquiring these skills, they should be able to apply them when they get out. They should be able to use them. There's no way in the world you can put your life on the line as a firefighter in the pen. But, and then, like you said, at that time you couldn't get out and do it. So shout out to my boy uh, Brandon and, and the whole forestry and Firefighter Recruiting Program because they make it to the point to get as many system impacted people as they can out there and showing that they are heroes and let them be the heroes that you know they, they are because they're out there on the front lines saving houses and lives too, right? And I'll say this too, Friday, there's another group of people that no one really talks about and they're American Disability Act workers inside prisons. And they're the ones who push these men around, these women around, they go inside, they clean their cells, they, they clean their persons at times, they clean their chairs. Mm all of the stuff they're caregivers in every sense they, they take them to get their food and their canteen and they're far from getting a, those type of jobs when they get out of prison and no one talks about that but wow with
4: you know um i'm one of two primary caregivers for my grandmother and i think i became one of the two primary caregivers after she caught covid you know, I don't know, whenever COVID first showed up on the scene. And um the physical work that's required for what you're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. bathing somebody, getting them up when they're not really fully mobile, um, getting them to a bathroom, you know, life things that we kinda just take for for granted. Um, helping wash their clothes, you know, laundry changing bedding, um that kind of work is physically exhausting work it and is. i you know it, there there has to be some sort of and and you got to figure right we're having this conversation and this still does fall in line with reparations the state issues business licenses and and gives you authorization to do certain things whether it's cosmetology barbering whether you're going to be a security guard, whether you're going to be a medical doctor, um, a nurse. um, There are all these things, right, that the state says, you got to come to us to get this license um, so that you can provide whatever service it is you provide. And that's one of those things. So if someone has actually done that level of work, that kind of caregiving, They need the same thing. Give me a certificate when I walk out of these walls so that, you know, I can go to Joe Blow Agency or find, you know, a client or start my own business because I've I've learned it so well. You know, I can get out there now and and hustle for myself. And we all know, like, the baby boomers, that generation um, basically is a generation uh, that, uh, the United States and corporate America has been able to profit off of. That's the that that boom uh, that happened in that generation. Um, you know, from car from from uh, diapers and children products. You know, uh, soy well not soy but milk formula diapers. You know, to um, cars to now you know those folks are went through adulthood so from life insurance policies all of these things that kind of use all of them people are aging now and what better you know people to to come and care for the aging that we know is going to happen in this massive scale than people who had to do that kind of caregiving you know on the inside
2: exactly that's that's one way of looking at it, uh, and everything you said is true, and it just makes me think while you were talking about the baby boomers in that generation, how yeah, a boom took place. But let's look at it from an economic perspective. It was also a great influx of government money going into that boom. That was like white welfare on steroids at that time. <laughs> you know, they were building the suburbs up and redlining and doing all manner of things at that time when doing, you know building that generation up. For so, you know the wealth that we see now, while we're having this discussion about reparations, because um, that that did take place, and it manifests into what we see today. Because a lot of people like to talk about where well, slavery ended so long ago, and it has no bar no 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 bearings on what we're dealing with today. And that discussion, it used to irritate me. Now it doesn't irritate me. It Just it saddens me. You know. Um, it's, it is really sad to hear people even say stuff like that. Like, I remember when I was in prison, somebody gave me an analogy. And it was like, imagine being on this track. And we both at the starting line. And when they say, get ready, get set, then they say, go. But they tell me, wait. And then they let the other person run 400 laps. <laughs> then they get to the four hundredth lap and tell me, okay, mm. now go. And then they said, now catch up. Catch up, we on the same track. We on the same right. track, you know. Catch up, we're stopping you. We're slowing you down. You know, I was like, that was a really good analogy. I like that. You know, it's a and great analogy.
6: It
4: yeah, it's a great analogy. But like, honestly, um, you know, these white folks, and I hate to just oversimplify, and I don't mean to um, stereotype white people, but I'm, I'm really talking to. People whose families have been here as long as, as as we have, you know, who who families go from seven uh, to ten, if not more, generations here in the United States. Um, right. You know, people don't consider this, but one of the things that I kind of do in my pastime is look at when a corporation started. The I like to do largest that too. Yeah, me too. The largest foundation, I think, in the United States, and they always kinda toggle from one to two, is the Cargill Foundation. And the Cargill company was founded in the eighteen hundreds. Um, I think they're the largest egg provider to like McDonalds or something like that. But you wow. you 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 from those generations, from eighteen hundred, you know, um, to today, you want to talk about wealth accumulation when the game is tilted in your favor. Like that's an example. Um, if you look at Jack Daniels, you know, Jack Daniels got his recipe from, uh, uncle nearest who was enslaved, but you know, Jack Daniels family got to keep the IP and Jack Daniels is internationally known, you know, um, Uncle Near's family works in, in a distillery, you know, for the bottle manufacturer. You can't compare, hey, you know, you can't make these comparisons. We like to use, um, you know... Hey, want, uh, I'm, I'm
2: sorry, sorry, I want to throw something in here real quick. And, if I'm not mistaken, Jack Daniels was like one of the early supporters of the private prisons in Tennessee, if I recall hmm. correctly. So I... I'm, we're gonna research it and find out, but I'm almost certain. I recall coming across that once before.
4: Wow! So, so look at you. what wealth can do. Wealth can even mm-hmm. build their labor, you know, through the prison system um, when they have it like that. And and seventh generation, we know that those people for being environmentally found and this and that, but seventh generation um that company has been around for seven generations and it comes from their family origins are from the cotton fields of kentucky so where do you think their money came from in order for them to be around seven generations selling you uh environmentally um sustainable cleaning products right you know, we gotta we have to look at these things in our everyday life in a practical way and not just, you know, say, Oh, well we we are all here now, we're all the same and you know, you just gotta work harder, be smarter, you know, all all of those kind of things. You know, America is full of promise and dreams. If you assimilate um into white society here, ethnic whites have done it, you know, Italian people have done it, Irish people have done it um German people have done it. Um, when you can assimilate here into what we racially categorize as, as white <laughs>
1: so
4: you you right. move from being an ethnic European to being white. And That's so if it. you assimilate, yeah, America, you know, we're we're seeing it now and no disrespect to my Latino brothers and sisters, but people act like because you came you know, to the United States from Spain by way of Mexico, that somehow you're not European? Like the the country of Spain is not in, in <laughs> Europe. In Europe? I mean, last I checked, that's where it is on the map. And so we're kind of watching now with the influx of what is being titled as Latinos, but a lot of them really are. You know, European, and a lot of them just like um, Desi Lu Studios, and I love Lucy. We all love Ricky Ricardo, so he was able to assimilate,
2: you know, into American life. Where did Cortez, where did Cortez come from? Where did Cortez come from? Right. Spain. Right. You know. Right. Where is Spain, Europe. Right. You have a lot of and, you have a lot of natives who are not fans of Cortez, though. You or or, or or just you know. You have a lot of pushback on that. I will say that, but you're right. You have pushback
4: back because you know there there was you know um, mixing, but we can't act like there was. We're not just like the United States gave land grants here in America. Spain gave land grants too, and
2: that's part of what I'm talking about with like white welfare, like the Homestead Act. You know that we were not even allowed to be a part of. It was only. Um, Something that white Americans or people who went to Western frontier could take part of buying acreage for like super cheap, super cheap. So when you look at that, we were like intentionally prevented from participating in the homestead act and being able to purchase land. And they were selling acres out here in the West, this newly acquired land, if you want to call it that, new acquired land for for dirt cheap. So now, fast forward to today, when you'll have families owning land. And that, that keeps them with family generational wealth. You can't look at the branches of the tree and just disregard the roots of the tree. How did you get there? How did it grow? What is it built upon? That matters. You know what I mean? Um, I want to ask you this question, Friday, before we go into our first segment, right? Okay. How can, um, what What was it that inspired you to get into the push for reparations to begin with?
4: Um, It was just sort of a natural progression. Um, When my kids, well, when the first one went off to college and then the second one was um, prepping to go to college, you know, I had free time for the first time in a long time. And that's around the time that I got involved with my neighborhood council and the budget advocates, and it was like, okay, how can I participate, you know, with the lowest hanging fruit of governance in Los Angeles is through Neighborhood Council. Um, And somewhere around that time also, that 2019, you know, the the algorithm on YouTube was pretty good and recommended a couple of YouTubers who were talking about politics and, and thinking of how the descendants of persons that were enslaved in the United States have a unique experience in history. Um, you know, my mother and my father is deceased, um, may God rest his soul, um, mm. but they are survivors of Jim Crow and segregation in the United States. My grandmother, my uncles, my aunts, they are survivors of um, Jim Crow and the Great Migration um, in the United States, Um the Great Migration was literally uh, black folks running away from white terror or ethnic European right. terror um, in the country. And so literally the, those people in a way were like refugees, although they were not treated like refugees. And, and we don't speak like that, you know, from a historical perspective. We'll talk about the Great Migration. And it's like, oh, the people went looking for better work, you know, um uh, better better work and, and better pay, you know, and so that's why they left. That's not why they left. If you talk to your, your, your family and if we haven't, you know, uh, clammed up due to our traumas and just stopped talking about things, if you talk to your grandparents and whatnot, they'll tell you what was going on. Mhm. And family folklore is also part of reparations, like making sure you know your family's story, knowing where your people come from, knowing where your people down south are buried, um, and always maintain a, a connection to those places. Um, we have a tendency to make it out. You know, even our celebrities do that. You know, they were raised in the hood, and then they get their NBA contract or NFL contract, and, you know, they out the hood. I understand you might need to do that because, you know, the hood can be rough and people can <laughs> be breaking in your house sometimes. <laughs> just because they know where you live. And it can get a little hot. I understand. But at the same time, you always kind of have to reach back.
2: We need that united, righteous, black mind state. We need that. Um, yeah. That's what Carter G. Whitson talked about in Miseducation of the Negro. He said right around the time at the, the, the decline of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, you know, blacks started getting money and then turning their backs on the communities. Like, I got mine, you get yours. So that whole mentality, according to that, that, you know, that, that text, is when that began to set in. And when we talk about the Great Migration, it makes me think of this book that I read while I was incarcerated called The Devil You Know by Charles Blow. And he talks about mm. the Great Migration and why it's a good idea now to start reversing the Great Migration and all going back to the South and building a strong central uh, place of power. That's what he talks about in that book. And it's a great read If you haven't read it For everybody else You should read it It's called The Devil You Know By Charles Blow And with that said We're going to take Our first break Friday And we're going to get Into our first segment Called These Are The Facts With my girl Tanya Mack And I want you To just check them out And if there's anything That catches your attention When we're done We're going to chop it up So thank you
7: Tales from the Plantation Nation Peace kings and queens My name is Tanya Mack I am your sister Your homegirl And your friend And these are the facts. According to the Equal Justice Initiative, between 1865 and 1950, at least 4,400 black women, men, and children were lynched by white mobs in the United States. According to the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting Program, in 2019, 88% 88% of black homicide victims were killed by black offenders in the United States. There were 7,484 black on black homicides in 2019 alone. In 2019 alone. You guys need to deep breath when you think about that, right? According to the Congressional Research Service, In 2016, 39% of welfare recipients were white, 25% were black, 22% were Hispanic, and 2% were Asian. According to a report by the National Association of Crime Defense Lawyers, black defendants are more likely to accept plea bargains than white defendants. This isn't necessarily because they're more guilty. But really, because the criminal justice system is biased against us. The following stats are from a book called Era of Mass Expansion by Joshua Aiken. Check this out. 70% of incarcerated people come from single-parent homes. 50% of incarcerated people are learning disabled. 50% of incarcerated people are illiterate. And 70% have no vocational training. Most juvenile offenders are in the 14 to 16 year age range. It costs $40,000 a year on average to house an inmate. That's five times higher than tuition at Penn State. In California, where we live, it costs $115,000, and that's almost 15 times the tuition for Penn State. The most recent government study of recidivism reported that 82% of people incarcerated in state prison were arrested at some point in the 10 years following their release but the vast majority of those were arrested within the first three years and more than half of those within the first year. 65% of the jail population meets medical standards for having a diagnosable substance abuse disorder. 15.3% of the jail population reports being recently homeless compared to just 2% of the general population. 52% of people in jail are people of color. Compared to only 28% of the general population, black people are jailed at four times the rate of white people. Four times the rate. According to the Times-Picune in Louisiana, many sheriffs especially in recent years, have embraced the for-profit business, let me say it again, have embraced the for-profit business of renting jail space to other authorities. This phenomenon is most visible in Louisiana, where the state has largely outsourced the construction and operation of state prisons to individual parish sheriffs. Just over half, about 52%, of the state's prison population is housed under contract with local jails. And as a result, two-thirds, approximately 67%, of the people held in Louisiana jails are not traditional jail inmates. I was using air quotes, but y'all couldn't see that. Unlike other states, Louisiana's jail building boom appears to have been entirely fueled by the pursuit of contracts within the state's prison system. According to the Huffington Post, since Sandra Bland died in 2015, at least 810 people have lost their lives in custody. This is Tales from the Plantation. I am Tanya Mack. And these are the facts. No spin, no blend, no putting nothing in. Thank you.
2: I can tell us from the plantation nation thank you to girl my girl tanya mack queen tanya Mac, for these are the facts and so friday is there anything that has stood out to you
1: um
4: the one thing that stood out was the age 14 to 16 um i forget what the statistics said but that 14 to 16 is is where um i guess young men first uh create the not create, um, have their first offense. Like that 14 to 16 stood out to me Um, because those are like transitionary years, like in TV talk, the wonder years. Um, And it must not be that wonderful. That stood out to me. Not
2: that one.
5: Right on. Thank you. Yeah,
2: um... I always make it a point, we always make it a point to include a segment, you know, these are the facts with straight numbers where it's not our opinion. Okay. You know, because people like to, there's a proposition of, of policy, there's a proposition of opinion, there's a proposition of facts. And when you put the facts, you you can't argue the facts, even though you have this new phenomenon now that, that has started, you know, prior to my release where they come with alternative facts, yeah. <laughs> which is something totally different. But for true, truth, you know, for those of us we live by the truth, the real truth, those are the numbers, and the numbers don't lie and and it's it's a yeah. problem yeah, it's a problem so before I bring in our our um so is chris here is Chris on with us all right so there's another question I wanted to ask you. I asked you what inspired you to to become involved right before we went on our break but how do you respond to critics who argue that reparations are not necessary or that they would be too costly?
4: Well, whose burden is that? You know, like those responses are said in a way as if black people are somehow, as a people, responsible for their own play. And I believe, you know, that we all clearly have, you know, free will. We have responsibility to sell family and community. Um, but. Living in this country has been no easy uh, path for black folks. And my response, usually I pull from my family folklore. You know, my great-great-grandfather, my great-grandmother's parents, um, you know, in the little town they were from, there was a black section of town that was kind of between the swamp and the railroads is where they would sell land to to black folks. They didn't sell them the good land. They sold sold them, um, you know, poor quality uh, land. But those people were able to raise their children, have a general store, you know, have a farm and make a life for themselves. And within one generation, um, my great grandmother had nine brothers and sisters. So there were 10 of them in total. And, after my great-grandfather passed away, the white men, like, in the community started literally raping black women on the side of the road, close wow. to uh, the the factories that were in town. And so the family, you know, they just felt like they weren't safe. And so they were part of the Great Migration. And this mm-hmm. was, I think, around, he died in, like, 1929, 1930, somewhere around there. Um, and so they, they left. You know, they left the swampy land and the, the Goodwill, you know, the a general merchandising store that they had where they sold goods, you know, to other black folks. And, you know, they left it all behind. And so the land that was lost today is actually in a gun range with a gun club that doesn't allow black members and it doesn't allow women. Wow. And so, you know, I I tell the story just to say, you know, you can't convince me that reparations is not due. Um, I have other family, you know, stories, that's just one, but you can't tell me that it's not due because, you know, black people really have um, not been able to sustain themselves and where they have tried they literally face you you know uh backlash and terrorism there's that farmer who just wanted to be a rancher and the the his white neighbor ranchers are literally poisoning his animals
2: mm-hmm.
4: because they just mm-hmm. didn't want him farming like th- this is 2023 and and that level of entitlement still goes on you can't have this life this life is for us this life is not, not- for you You can't raise your family as a whole family unit. That's not for you. That's for us. Um, Until we're Mm -hmm. ready to have, like, real conversations, I don't Mm -hmm. think people can ask me those kinds of questions because they're going to get an answer that's way too real (laughs) from me.
2: Oh, okay. So, listen, I'm so happy to hear you say that. I already know. I already know. So prior to us, you know, having this show, I was doing some research and I came across this segment that just, of course, you always got one of these handkerchief heads. Who was who that? called them handkerchief heads. Is that Malcolm X. <laughs> <Some> <laughs> more handkerchief heads, black folks, right? They got some old token Negro stuff to say. So I'm, I came across this this YouTube clip um, from Fox News after one of the hearings that you all had. That you know, you, Chris, and Camilla, and and, and Senator Bradford, and everyone that you all had, and. They had some commentary on it, so I would like to share it right now. It's about five, six minutes long, and I just want you to listen to it if you haven't already seen it. Then we're gonna dialogue about it. All right? Okay. All right.
0: Tales from the Plantation Nation.
6: California's reparations task force has approved a plan to make cash payments to certain Black residents and issue a formal state apology for slavery. And California taxpayers are set to inherit a massive bill. I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying, slavery, California. I know what you're thinking. We'll get to it. Under the proposal, eligible black residents would receive compensation of up to $1.2 million. In total, that could cost an estimated $800 billion. That's more than two and a half times the state's annual budget. Some activists don't even think that's enough. We must repair this damage.
4: We must repair it. Reparations are not only morally justifiable, but they have the potential to address long-standing
3: racial disparities and inequality. You say nothing about slavery. Nothing. So the equivocal number from the 1860s for 40 acres today is $200 million. For each and every African American. Phil. Hmm. Um. Slavery was abolished in California in 1850. Um. I don't know. I, I. think based on the sound bites you just heard, that doesn't matter to the folks who were talking no. at that event. William L. Just was covering this story for us earlier today. Uh, he told me a couple of things I wasn't aware of this task force was created after the death of George Floyd mm-hmm. so it's been going on for a while right now. It comprised of one Japanese American remember World War II, Japanese Americans internment camps during the Second World War and everyone else is black uh, on this board and you don't need to be a descendant of a slave and you don't need to show harm. But I, I, don't, know, I don't know where this goes I don't know where you get the money I don't know what Hispanics say in California um, but the rubber is going to meet the road when it comes to the state to go ahead and say, all right, so guys, a time to pony up money.
6: It, the, the reparations that that man at that city council meeting was talking about, and reparations, mm-hmm. I think, as most people understand it, somebody in your family had to be a <laughs> slave.
3: Um, oof. I, I, as I recall, <laughs> when the original proposal was put out there, you have to prove that you lived in California prior to 1939, I think. But let me check that. Um, but it's not just California. Your home, th- th- this is spreading to other cities. And your hometown of Kansas City is talking about an idea too. Right. You know, the city council granted a, a board to look into this as well. Um, I, I, I think you're going to see this and do you more think other, and more frequently.
6: Other um, diverse lanes, uh, minorities will get involved, like the one Japanese mm-hmm. participant and the one in California.
3: I, I, I don't know. I are think they, the, I are think, they open to do that? I think California, anything's possible. But again, when it com- whether it's 1.2 million, which was,
6: or 200 million, or that 200
3: million, or even a hundred thousand yeah. dollars, right? Who talk pays about, and when?
8: Yeah. Um, talk to
6: me about the legality of this.
8: Right, and I, I just want to make sure that viewers understand. So that's left unresolved yet. So under the plan right. that this this group has put forth over the last two years, um, this board was created by the, by Governor Gavin Newsom. So it's unclear, unresolved exactly who of the 2.5 million African Americans living in California would be eligible. Some argue, including at that meeting, that you would have to be a direct descendant from slaves. Others argue that simply those Californians affected by decades of racist policies should qualify, yes. How do you Um, prove that? Exact dollar amounts would be left to lawmakers to decide after the commission makes its final report to the slate legislature, that's at the end of June. But economists working with this, as we thought, we know the total cost could exceed 800 billion, which just a reminder and for perspective, is two and a half times times California's annual budget. So it raises more questions than it answers, frankly. Number one being the eligibility and the determination of such Harris, and also who and how this would be paid for, because the answer
6: is. So how do we prove that people have been wrong by decades of policies if you're like, as that gentleman said, uh, in the hole for 200 million is what he thinks that each person of color is. I shouldn't say people of color, particularly blacks.
8: Yeah, I, I don't know how you prove that. Um, and I also don't know how you pay for it. To Emily's point, uh, there was no cost estimate in this. Um, it's given to the legislature on July 1st. They will decide what to do with it. Governor Newsom's been pretty silent on this. Um, he could take executive action to override the legislature if they don't adopt it. A lot remains to be seen. He needs those votes, say, though,
6: if he's going to run for president. I would
8: just quickly say that there's a $22 billion deficit in California, and that was underestimated by Newsom by 7000000000 So billion. They're already running a deficit, so how do you pay for it? the worst.
6: Wow. Um, Okay, I was going to ask you about DNA, but as Bill and Emily have pointed out, apparently you don't have to be the descendant of a slave. So wouldn't that mean that everybody can get this money?
8: Even if you did have to be, DNA would be very difficult at this point, seeing as it wasn't very good records back then. But, you know, the paternalism of white liberalism is astounding here. And all you really have to do is look at the policies. So look at what happened under President Trump. You had President Trump's First Step Act, where he released thousands of nonviolent black men from prisons. Under President Trump, you (laughs) had the historic lows unemployment for black Americans. Now, President Biden's policies, unfortunately, the soft on crime, you've had larger crime waves in specifically democratic areas with black victims. And you also are favoring illegal immigration, which are taking away from resources, from poor black communities. So, you know, they can talk the talk, but truly when it comes down to it, the democratic policies are hurting black Americans and these reparations are really just a means for optics and they're not actually doing anything to help black Americans.
6: What you said is still ringing around in my head, Bill, and that is the fact that, no, don't have to be a descendant of a slave. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I think everybody will come out into the streets saying, where's mine? Yeah,
3: I think under this setup they have that a special, a different state agency will then determine lineage and genealogy. Wow! So uh, how that works, I I do not know.
6: Dr. Sapphire just told us that it's not not going to be easy. Okay, let's move on.
8: Hey, everyone. I'm Emily Campagno. Catch me and my co-hosts, Harris Faulkner and Kaylee McEnany, on Outnumbered every weekday at 12 p.m. Eastern or set your DVR. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Fox News YouTube page for daily highlights.
2: Well, now. A lot to there. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even funny. It's so serious. It's not even funny. I don't. I First of all, let me welcome my man Chris, Chris logs into the show. Round of applause for my man Chris. Can
1: you, can you hear me? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, we can hear Easy you, man. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. This is Chris Logs and everybody, lead organizer for C-JAC, um, California's for Just, Coalition for Just and Equitable California, and I call him the general. I mean, because he's he's a like you said, he's the man leading the charge to get us reparations here on on the ground. And Thank did you, you hear some of that just now? You're welcome, bro. Oh, bro, I
5: heard. I heard too much of it. (laughs) Okay, so I'm. I'm gonna let Friday
2: have her say first and foremost.
5: Get him, Friday. Get (laughs) him.
2: Well, let's go, Friday. Where you want to start? So I'm gonna hit
4: three quick points. First of all, it's very disturbing that um, Fox, which we know is a conservative uh, station, want to attribute reparations to white liberals reparations has been um uh attempted to to have if you will since the days of Callie House since she had 400,000 enslaved people petitioning mm-hmm. congress to act and congress did not so i don't appreciate fox news whoever the woman was saying that this is a white liberal issue, particularly in the state of California, where if they were paying attention, they would know that it is the descendants and the grassroots organizers like Chris, like myself, who actually move this action forward, not white liberals. That's number one. Um, number two, it's interesting to me to hear the gentleman say, well, what are the Latinos you know, going to do? Right. What are the Mexicans right. going to do? Um, which to me is a conservative statement, but it sounds eerily similar to Barack Obama, former president, when he was running for office, and his whole um, cry was about all the immigrants who are in the United States or coming to the United States now, and it's not their obligation as if to to, um, absolve the United States government of its laws and its devastation and its genocide of our American freedmen people. So that's like the Mm. second point, because it's interesting to me how, like, the Democrats and the GOP conservatives can sound the same um, with their language. Um, Mm. And then the other thing, you know, they're saying, oh, well, you don't even have to prove you know, your family was enslaved, as if to say it's a free-for-all. I just think that's disingenuous.
2: It so, is. So those are my three points. And I, and I know you were being kind, right, and, and mindful of the time, because I know there was so much more there that you can unpack and go in on. And, and I like those three points. I mean, uh, specifically the fact that he tried to – I feel like he was race-baiting. You know what I'm saying? They use these explosive words to try to get people to respond and react. And they know what they're doing. They're on the news. They're part of the media. The, the woman that was doing the majority of the talking, that was a black woman. And the guy who was doing the majority of the talking, of course, was a white man. Right. And so it was just hilarious to hear him say that. And then what really got wow. me when he said this panel, he was like this panel of, of all black folks with this one, with this one um, Japanese American. Okay, so let's go back to, to the 39th Congress in 1865 when they decided, you know, what they was going to do with slavery, and they was going to take it from behind, from, from, from rural South and put it behind prison walls instead of really abolishing it. That was a room for the all-white men. There wasn't no white women. There wasn't no black women. There wasn't no black men. It wasn't even one Japanese American.
1: <laughs>
2: there wasn't one Japanese American, so it's funny to hear him bring that up.
4: Well, Among he other he, things. he brought it up, but he also brought it up as if like black people can't self-govern. And if
2: you and if that. you
4: read Barracoon by uh, Zora Neale Hurston, you know with that last group of uh, uh, African people who were illegally smuggled into the United States and formed Africatown down in Alabama, you know the their the owner. Um, who smuggled them in, the criminal, actually. Let me get my words together. Um, you know, he let them govern, and they chose one person to be the leader to speak for them all. Mm. And and that was something customary, like, back in the day. Like, if there were uh, enclaves of black folks, there usually was someone who was, like, the older, the elder. That's kind of the position that my great-great-grandfather, you know, played. But then when he died, it was like a free-for-all. And so right. for them to just suggest, like, you know, well, the Negroes can't self-govern, you know, you don't have to be a Negro in order to be on the commission, well, you don't have to be white to be president of the United States. But that's, that's like, what it is. That's how it's been. So that's, that's let true. black folks have self-governance and put an H on your
2: chest and handle it. Man, Martin Luther King talked about the drum major effect. And he explained everything you just said right there. And Paulo Freire, in his book, Pedagogy to Oppress, he said, you got to trust the oppressed people to know what they need. You don't have to come in and say that we're the saviors and this is what you need. And so I want Chris, General Chris, I need you to respond to some of that stuff that you heard, some of this rhetoric, you know, that they were spewing on Fox. And while you're doing it, I want you to, you know, first of all, we'll get to that. Just respond to whatever stood out to you the most.
5: Absolutely. And and I wanna thank you for, for the opportunity again, brother, and for your amazing platform and you know, it it's crazy because I'm coming in a little bit late because I was just talking to a bunch of folks who are organizing for reparations here in California. And before that I was talking to some folks in the media who were asking about reparations in California. Um and now I'm here. Um and, and this is where I wanna be. And and I I when I came in here I, I I came in and I was like, "Is this uh, is this the right place?" Because I'm hearing Fox News, <laughs> um, <laughs> but then I but then I immediately knew what I was listening to. Like after the first second and a half, I said, "Okay, this is Fox News. Uh, this is and, and this is this this is, this is a clip from from Fox News that you know um, and that and by the by the way, Fox and I think other media organizations are really a part of uh, organized effort to hurt reparations in California. And what you heard from Fox and from the people on Fox just in in that clip is really something that they are saying and doing almost every week, almost every single week, we're hearing misinformation and disinformation, straight up lies from folks at Fox News. Fox News right now is not to be trusted around anything reparations, not to be trusted at all. If it comes from Fox News, you know, they, they, they have shown themselves to be liars quite, quite Frankly, the 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 hosts on Fox News have shown themselves to be liars for sure um, and misinformed. You know, you know, you know. Also, and I think it's what they are doing a disservice Anyone, to their audience.
2: I say this, I say this real quick. Anyone that can promote yeah. alternative facts, that that's it for me. Once once they became advocates right. of the alternative facts, that was you know. I mean, I didn't, I never believed in them anyway. But that was just like the
5: the, the linchpin right there. So right on and. And You're absolutely right was and I, and I was saying I, I think they're doing a disservice to their to their audience You know be because there are conservatives who support reparations There are Republicans who support reparations and so for them to you know And I, I made this point a, a few months back even even if you disagree with reparations You know even if the people on your show who are your hosts and your anchors and your you know, media folks and your per- producers even if they disagree with reparations personally I think they have a journalistic media obligation to at least tell the damn truth about it, uh, and you let their audience right and 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 let their audience make a decision one way or another. At least you give them the correct facts. What we heard from Fox just now were a bunch of lies. First of all, they saying that you don't have to be a descendant of U.S. slavery. That's a lie. Yes, you do. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, you do. The, the task force said that over a year ago. So. You know how do you get something wrong that's like a a a, a year old? Um, so that's that's absolutely absolutely not true. Um, also, you know, there's there's there was talk about you know how much and sort of you know, you know how this would would be would would be paid paid for and whether or not California can afford it. California has the fourth largest economy on planet Earth. Right? Oh, the planet fourth largest Earth. economy in the world on planet Earth on this planet is the state of California, not the country of California. The state. Of, of California, so what California wants to afford California can af- afford what you heard from fox also in a, in addition to lies is really fear mongering um and trying to scare people um you know with with those lies and they also have a thing for to be quite honest with you, they also have a thing for Governor Gavin Newsom too. Um, there's probably not one week where they don't have a story that's anti-Governor Gavin Newsom. Also, so you're hearing mm-hmm. sort of a, you know, sort of a combination of things from Fox. Most of it is lies, misinformation, disinformation, trying to scare you, fear mongering. Um, ultimately, that's all going to be unsuccessful because there's too much, too much momentum here in California for California rep- reparations. And, and as I was saying before, and I'll, and I'll end with this: It ain't over until we win.
2: That's it, and we're going to win. And that's why you are the general, you know what I'm saying? And we all thank you for the work that you are doing and Friday are doing and everyone on the task force is doing. And, yeah, Friday um, um, excuse me, and Fox, they they are a propaganda machine right now, and that's why it was important for me to play that clip, because there are a lot of really good people who are um, recipients of the disservice that they're doing by promoting that type of propaganda. And so not only was it important for me to have you all on the show to talk to folks who are incarcerated and their families, but I wanted to play that clip so that those who come from different walks of life could actually hear it dispelled right here without any animosity, without any hatred, just the straight facts and the truth, you know? And something I would like you to touch on while you're here are the five pillars of reparation, you know, the five R's, if you don't mind, for me.
5: Absolutely, brother. And and thank you again. So, Anywhere you go in the world, you go to South Africa, you go to Germany, anywhere where there's reparations that have happened, if you talk to folks at the, at the, at the United Nations, uh, when, when they talk about reparations, there are some international standards. And the international standards include five pieces to it. The first piece of the international standards for reparations are compensation. That's the money. That's the checks. That's the direct cash. I have a saying. I'm going to say it again. If it don't have compensation, it ain't reparations. If it don't have compensation in it, it ain't reparations. reparations. This is not the time to be doing stuff other than direct compensation, other than direct financial payments. Um our people who work for free for two hundred and fifty six plus years, that's a lot of back pay. And we are and we are definitely owed and I don't think there's any I, I, I haven't seen any reparations that have happened anywhere where where people didn't get paid. So we're not gonna be the exception. Um, we have to get direct compensation. So that's the first piece. Second piece is what we call restitution. Uh, you, you can you can think about this as the return of land or the return of property, the restoring of you to where you would have been, could have been, should have been, had the bad thing that happened to us never happened in the first place, um, mm-hmm. and or um, you know pro- 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 providing financial um, you know uh, you know a compensation to you know to the equivalent of what the land would have, would have would have been or to, or to the equivalent of what the property would have been if you can't directly re- return the land or the return of the property so restitution is part two um, rehabilitation and this is a word that I know we talk a lot about in the work that you know we do to you know to end the involuntary servitude slavery exception in our state constitution and and actually make the prisons Places where folks are rehabilitated and not sort of just warehoused and sort of used for profit which I know you are doing tremendous work on on Sam as the original author of the assembly constitutional amendment that would remove that slavery and involuntary servitude exception rehabilitation think of these Thank as you. the more um think think of these as free legal services free medical services free education services from caredo to the to the to the grave or the financial equivalent there, there, thereof. Um, and the other form is what we call guarantees of non-repetition, or I call these protections. These are changes to our government, changes to our laws, changes to our systems to make sure that what happened never happens, never happens again. Finally, right. uh, the final piece is what we call satisfaction. And even though it has the word satisfy in it, it doesn't mean that. It, it means what we might think of as the more symbolic forms of, Um, things to to do. So, for example, a formal public apology or changing our textbooks to make sure that the actual history of what actually happened is told. So those are the five pieces. The State Reparations Task Force in California um, has recognized those five pieces. They are required by law to recognize those five pieces um, and then come up with a reparation scheme that satisfies all of those five pieces. And that's what they're doing. Thank you for that. Thank you. I, I really wanted you to share that
2: because no one speaks it as eloquently as you, and our listeners really need to hear it, because like we heard on that clip just now, they're making it seem like reparations is just everybody standing in line for a, a million-dollar check, and that's not it. That's not the answer, and that's not what you all are advocating for, and that's not what we're seeking to get. You know, and I want to thank you for you know, uh, mentioning ACA 8 and recognizing my contributions to it, but you at the core of it now. You know what I'm saying? And you just as much of a factor of it as me, if not more, at this point. So I thank you for all your humility and all the work that you're constantly doing. And with that said, we're going to take a, a quick break and get into this segment right here called The Artist Going the Hardest with my boy Scott. And um, it's this real special tribute because Scott's brother, who's on the track, you'll find out, he just recently transcended. So it's an honor to be able to put this song on trails from the Plantation Nation. And this is the artist going the hardest, my boy Scott, All Kings. Let's go, you.
1: Peace, world. you listening to Tales from the Plantation
2: Nation. My name is Scott Caspagatti. I produced the song My Sermon
1: featuring Bobby Bruiser and Ray Lou. Unfortunately, Bobby Bruiser passed away last week, but his legacy still lives on through his music. Appreciate y'all taking the time to check it out. Stay tuned for more Tales from the Plantation Nation. Yeah. <laughs> I was told no weapons formed against me shall prosper That's why I stay humble, smoke we like a roster When the revolution come, I'm banging my chopper Government officials, even the coppers Form in my army, nurses, doctors Educated youth, the future barrackers With numbers and unity, how could they stop us? And it will be televised, come and watch us With the same eye on the dollar note with the pyramid Fuck economic boycott till they feelin' it Wake up, people, these Niggas got no rewards Have you on a plantation fiddler Chicken George What's the reason that I'm living for? If my peoples can't prosper And my children ain't living more As I keep learning the world will keep turning For you, this is my sermon Money that they earning in hell they be burning For you, this is my sermon As I keep learning the world will keep turning For you, this is my sermon Money that they earning in hell it be burning For you, this is my turn That's why I tell them stay woke or stay broke The game don't stop Only the players rearrange until we change our ops Fighting for blocks Coming for each other's necks on lock Without the plan to overthrow that man He stays
2: on top Get the drop or we lose the clock Waiting for charity Call it how I see it Cause I'm living with clarity Evil that these men do Looking for parity But it stays lopsided Probably till they bury me So meanwhile I'ma tell these kids to keep getting it Cause God already won and If you hustle keep flipping it Moving with the purpose in these streets it's difficult when the laws are made, the trappers and the profits are minimal. No difference between being a businessman or a criminal. Don't follow the crowd, stay true as an individual. It's mental and it's physical,
1: fighting for residuals. For too many, it's pitiful, situations are critical. So As I keep learning the world I keep turning for you, this is my sermon. Money that they earning in hell, they be burning for you, this is my sermon. I keep learning the world to keep turning For you, this is my service Money that they earning And hell, they be burning For you, this is my service uh-huh. <laughs> And now you know what's what You can fight it all you want But until you get it, you ain't got it Until you feel that you want
2: God-given mission, get it together, <laughs> this is my service, this is where I leave you. Man, shout out to producer Scott Gaddy, resurrecting peace and power, to um, Bobby Bruiser, and that was the artist going the hardest, brought to you by Aim for the Heart, and new Nubian fashion, more than just clothing, it's the music, I mean, excuse me, I'm sorry, more than just, more than just clothing, it's a movement. <laughs> com, y'all. No more baby mamas, no more baby daddies. So back to this discussion that we're having with our guests, Friday Jones and Chris Lawson, two of the champions of reparations here in California and across the nation. And so just before we went to the artist going the hardest, you heard Chris break down the five pillars of reparations and how it's more than just people receiving the check. And so I go into the prisons once a week and I talk to men and They ask me about, you know, the the bill to end slavery, but they also ask about reparations quite often. And I know how important it is to all of you. When I say you, I mean everybody that's a part of this push for reparations and the reparations task force um, to talk to the people in the carceral setting and get their insight and and, and help them understand what you all are fighting for out here. So I want you to take this opportunity right now, if you don't mind. um, We can start with you, Chris, to, like, talk to the people inside and what does reparations mean to somebody that's sitting inside a prison with a life sentence right now?
5: Mm. Wow. That is an amazing and and dope question, brother. Um. First of all, to the to the brothers and sisters that's locked down right now. Uh, first thing I want to say is we love you. All right. Right. We love right you, and we fighting for you here on the outside, and we doing everything we can right now. To work to get you out of where you are, even if you got a life sentence, and and I and, and I and I say that um, as someone who, as as you know, Sam, and I don't know if I, if you if you know this family, but um, I was just uh, brought on and and hired as the community organizing and policy manager for the Anti Recidivism Coalition here in California. I work in the Sacramento office. Uh, we have yes, a team sir. in LA. So if you know ARC, um, if you if you lock down right now. You, you you may have heard of ARC um i've i talked to people who had life in prison every single day who are out now i had, I had a I had a, a gentleman in my office earlier today who was on death row who i sat with and 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 talked to and we we are you know working to get you know, him part of some of the advocacy and policy work that we do here at um a- ARC so i would say don't give up hope don't give up hope don't give up on yourself um, i i literally talk to folks who, who had life on a daily basis who are home now. Um, so I would say, first, we, we, we love you. Two, we, we, we fighting for you. Three, don't give up hope. And fourth, as it relates to reparations, know that part of what the State Reparations Task Force has identified that we are owed reparations for is the criminal, illegal, injustice system and what that's, and what that's done. to so people like your, yourself, those of you who are behind the wall, Right now, and one of the things that reparations has the has the potential to do is is one stop the flow of young brothers and young sisters coming into that place, stop mm-hmm. the revolving door where you go in, come out, go in, come out, et cetera, and give you a real chance at success when you're out here. Part of what we do here at at a r c is we help people get a real chance at success in life, a real chance a real life chance at success in in life when you're home. I know you know when when you coming home you're looking for work and you're looking for education and you, and, you, and you're looking for housing and you're looking for for all kinds of things to support you on your journey what what reparations has the potential to do is make that easier and make it more likely that you will be successful when you're out here. Also is a way to be able to support your families if and while you still are locked down, too. You know, rep- reparations here is going to be for individuals. So that means those of you all with, with you know, with you know with, with sons and daughters and wives and girlfriends, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, boyfriends, et cetera, et cetera, uh, this is a way to help support your family while you're not there. So those are some of the things that that, that I would say. The last thing I would say is, um, I can't wait to see y'all and meet y'all in in person because one of the things that I think um, I would have liked to see more of, and that we're you know focusing more on of, on now through your work, Sam, and through the through the support that you're providing for us, is to make sure that we actually are coming into the prisons to actually talk to the brothers and sisters directly. So I'm looking forward to seeing y'all soon.
2: That's right. That's right. That's going to be with the 10P program, and since we're combining our efforts with 10P and Jack and our whole coalition. ARC is a part of the coalition, too. And it's a, man, it's such a, a blessing to have you become a part of this staff, not just for them, but for all of us, because, you, you know, you do such great work. So you did tell me about that, and congratulations on Thank you, stepping up into that position. You know what I'm saying? It, that's fire. That is so fire. And shout-out to my Thank boy, Esteban, to, you know, um, to, to, to Sam bond, Lewis over Michael, there. Yeah, yeah, Sam
5: Lewis, big like up, big up. You know what I mean?
2: You feel me?
5: Yep. But so, Bakila, the whole, the the whole, the whole team, Joseph, I
2: love, all of
5: them. Yep, I love yeah.
2: So yeah, maybe I get some of them on the show to continue to talk about this work that we're doing. I appreciate that, uh, which you just shared, and I know the men on, and the women and the women, definitely the women and the men on the inside appreciate that too because oftentimes they're overlooked and forgotten. And as I ask that question. You know, I never want people to think that we're just always here advocating for people who are incarcerated and forget that they're incarcerated for a reason, you know, because that reason is not always just cut and dry like some people might make it seem. It's not that, oh, they committed a crime, they hurt somebody, they should just be in prison. I'm not saying excuse the fact that they committed the crime because how would I feel if it was my loved one that got murdered and then somebody was in prison for it? You know what I'm saying? And then I heard somebody just talk about, oh, let these guys out of prison or give them reparations. That might not fit well with me. You know, so I'm not glossing over that or glazing over that like that's not a real feeling or a real thing. What I am saying is that there's more to it than just that that element of free will that was an inherent part of, of Western jurisprudence from its province. You know, from the very beginning of it, there was always this, well, when people commit crimes, they do it of their own volition, and therefore, we should deal with them with all celerity. We should just rush to punish them. And what that does is that astarges the collective conscience of society and how it contributed to the forming of the individual and the decisions that they felt that they had to make to, to survive. Right? So we take a look at, you know, from a social ecological perspective, we take a look at all the social factors that contributed to building the individual as well as you know, the, the inherent uh, decisions, internal at- attributions that, the, that, that went into the decisions that the person made. So when we talk about people who are incarcerated, I don't want crime survivors to feel like they're excluded or that we don't, you know, have a... Um, that they're not included, period, because that's not the case. Well, the way we're looking at it is we're all casualties. All, all of us, need of some healing on both sides. And so for that reason... This next question, when I ask you, Friday, I want to ask you, you know, I asked Chris, what does reparations mean to people, you know, sitting in prison with a life sentence? And now I'm going to come the opposite direction, and I'm going to ask you, what does reparations mean to a crime survivor? You know, the survival of, of, of a crime of someone who committed a crime against them, to hear us talking about, you know, changing the lives of people who are incarcerated and, and these benefits but what does it mean to somebody who might not be so happy about everything Chris just shared?
4: Well, um, that's a very thoughtful and thought-provoking question at the same time. Um, I think for, um, you know, Cheryl's daughter um, was really young when um, Lester Polk, and uh, the people who, who participated in the home invasion um, affected Cheryl's family's life, right? Um, right. And um, I think one of the things, and this is as a society, like ever since Reagan just demolished mental health and, and how we kind of manage uh, mental health at a large scale in the country, um Mental health has its place in reparations, and I think whether um, someone is a victim or someone is the perpetrator um, of a crime, and particularly violent crimes, I think um, like your Tempe program, reparations can be restorative if we actually legislate the mental health component. Um, one of the things that came out of our session with you um, was that mental health healing aspect. And, you know, Lester had to do therapy like every day.
2: A lot. Like a A lot, lot.
4: right? You know, and and we don't think about that kind of immersion into wellness, immersion in, in a mental health way. And I think, um, whether it's lineage therapy, you know, we have a way in the black community of saying family curses. I don't believe in family curses. It's just family trauma that's never been properly diagnosed, dealt with intergenerationally. And there are people who are trained in that. So I do think that reparations from the mental health um, space and that sort of healing space can be beneficial to, um both sides of the equation in the way you ask the question. Um, I think it's it's helpful to society at large because we're, then we're really rehabilitating um, exactly. people and that rehabilitation and, and, you know, make it incorporating people back into society so that they can be productive I think is important. Um, you know, no one likes to talk about a sociopath, but a sociopath is not going to change because of their nature. Um, there are going to be at times you know exceptions um and and those people you know have to be managed um according to to you know what's applicable to them but reparations and the restoring of someone back to humanity i think has positives for both um the perpetrators of crimes um as as well as um you know the people they may have impacted.
2: Thank you very much. I really love how you eloquently broke that down. And we're about out of time. So it was just teeming with, with so many facts and so much. I um. I want you all to close us out, really, um, whether it's the two of you or one of you. I just want to say that at the beginning of this conversation, you talked about hurt people hurt people. And I often hear this argument that white people were slaves and and you know, this happened to Jews and this happened to the Asians and it troubles me that any time we get to talking about correcting wrongs or uh, historical injustices with black people, we always have to get into the discussion where we compare traumas. Where we compare traumas. Yeah. Even though ours is more egregious than everyone on the planet. You know, but no one everybody feels their theirs is more egregious than everyone on the planet. But we don't have to compare traumas every time we talk about the blacks or Africans, you know what I'm saying? So I really wish we could, we could stop that. So as we end tales from the Plantation Nation today, one of you all, please, for everyone else that's listening, just why should they support reparations? Why should Governor Newsom, you know, sign off on, on reparations? Please.
4: My short and sweet answer is it will really heal this nation. Um, and it's going to heal the white people, too, even though they're going to fight the, the hardest against it. Um, I also want to throw some social medias up and out. Um, you can Please follow like me at, at I am Friday Jones. Uh, that's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, now TikTok, although I'm learning that medium. Um, for <laughs> the city of Los Angeles' reparations task force, if you go to civil, and this is all spelled out, civil and and d human rights, Um, People can sign up for the newsletter and stay informed and know um, when the City uh, of L.A.'s Reparations Task Force is going to be getting together. And then uh, if folks want to really follow, like, the national movement, um, because the National Assembly of American Slavery Descendants, the National Org, is really doing some really great work. Chris has been instrumental in the work that we're doing Um, At the federal level and in helping other municipalities follow uh, California's lead, they can go to naasd.org and sign up for our newsletter so that they can just stay informed because every now and again we need people to make phone calls, send (laughs) emails. Uh That's right. You know, we we just want to push you a little bit Not a lot, but every now and again We need some phones to ring And so I want to make hey. sure that you you can be part of The movement in a meaningful way
2: Go on, Lady Moses You know Harriet Tubman had that shotgun to them folks back Ain't no turning back Get off this plantation <laughs> There's no so turning Chris. back Get off this plantation, man So, Brother Chris, we already passed our, our, our time man. I need you to tell everyone where they can find you and give your closing statements on why we should have, or you know, why reparations are needed, brother.
5: Absolutely, and I do want to say, uh, please do follow and support my sister Friday. Um, she is, a, a, to be honest with you, a generational leader in this work. Um, I don't, I don't think we would. I, I know for a fact we wouldn't be where we are without Friday. Um, so if if you're following anyone around reparations, you make sure that you follow Friday um, and support her. Her work both at the national level at the National Assembly of American Slavery, Descendants, uh, NASD.org. Also, the work that she, that she does as VP of the L.A. City, Rep- City Reparations Commission. Um, you can find me um, at CJEC Official on IG, Twitter, Facebook, at CJECOfficial at gmail.com, um, www.CJEC-Official.org. Um, and to your question, why should people support reparations? One, um, it's always—I you know, it, think Dr. King said it. I hope I get the quote right, but it's—you know—it's um, never too late to do the right thing, or um, you know, it's always the right time to do the right thing. This is something that is long overdue. Um, it's a debt owed, um, and it is the right thing to do morally. It is literally the right thing to do. If, if you care about right and wrong, if you care about good and bad, if you are a, if, if if you are somebody who has those values in your heart, prove it. Support reparations, true right. for those who are what it's in a person's enslaved in the in the United States. Thank you, brother. Thank you very
2: much. And we're going to leave with that. And as we come, as, a, as Juneteenth approaches, I want everyone to know we're celebrating Juneteenth, but we're still fighting to end slavery. We're fighting to get reparations, but we're still fighting to end slavery. So I want everybody to be mindful of that because we're going to talk about that some more. Check us out on Sundays, Abolition Today, on Sundays at 4 o'clock PST, um, 7 o'clock EST, and Tales from the Plantation Nation every Wednesday, 4 p.m. PST, 7 p.m. EST. My name is Samantha Daniel Brown. I'm your host. Thank you for joining us have a blessed week reparations now in slavery now Peace. Yeah. 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 yeah don't worry don't worry i'll be
0: there in a minute, I'll be there in a minute. get on to y'all get on to y'all go Broke right. the flame is no longer knowing you all were going to be this much trouble, we would have picked our own
6: fucking cotton. Abolition.
0: Abolition. Abolition. Abolition.
2: Abolition.